0: Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Wenton, California. Last week, we took a look at an old book, an old minor prophet, and it taught us a very interesting lesson. Habakkuk is a very beautiful gem of a book that was written by a prophet who started out wrestling with God and then ended up worshiping him. The distressed prophet who complained over the unchecked sin of his country and over the sin of everyone around there as we read in first part of chapter 1 was amazed at God's Disclosure that he had already prepared an instrument in which to judge Judah, and namely Babylon. Habakkuk was shocked, and I think some of us were even shocked about what was said, about how God expressed himself to him, how God gave him the answer that he was asking for, but it wasn't exactly the answer that he wanted to receive from God. He expressed his dilemma to God, and he waited for an answer. And that answer came in chapter 2, which we will not be discussing this morning, but he find it in chapter 2 in the form of a, a taunt song, so to speak. That Habakkuk was instructed to record and learning of God's just plan to destroy Babylon, Habakkuk bowed in humble adoration. A majestic prayer and hymn of praise follows in chapter 3, and that's where we will be this morning, Habakkuk chapter 3. His prayer in chapter 3, one of the grandest in the Bible, I feel, is a pinnacle of praise. It is a pinnacle of praise. It is the mountaintop which in this journey began in the valley of distress and doubt. But this morning we're going to look at the first part, of the prayer of praise to God for His power and involvement in the world. So first, we're going to look at verses one and two because we need to be praying for revival and mercy. We need to be praying for revival and mercy, and if you would have what God alone can give, we must pray. If we would have revival in God's house, his people must pray. Habakkuk records a prayer song of praise for God's people to sing. And you can see that in the last statement of chapter 3. But as verse 1 states, the song is a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shaginoth. The revelation of God to Habakkuk has changed him. Much like when we read God's word, it should be changing us. His circumstances had not changed, but he had changed. He is now walking by faith and not by sight, he is living by God's promises not by his human reasoning. Originally, he was concerned with iniquity and injustice, as it, of course, affected his personal world and nation. But then he was concerned with violence and injustice within the whole world and how God was going to deal with this world. But now that he has... This encounter with the Lord in a fuller, deeper way. He is concerned about and he's focused on how God is and how he is worthy of praise and how he is worthy of that majestic glory that he deserves. So he humbly lays bare his heart and he begins. This new section of the oracle with the words, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. He had come to understand that his God's ways were beyond him, but through faith and meditation, they are glorious to him. He now stands again simply as Habakkuk the prophet. And he records this prayer of praise as a hymn that can be used in public worship. The word shigenoth is obscure, but it means to stumble or go astray. Scholars think it's most probably a liturgical or worship term or as a plea for guidance. And Habakkuk was no... Passive spectator of this sad spiritual decline of Judah from which he was living, nor was he a passive recipient of the coming judgment. He understood what was to come. He may not have liked it, much like we don't like bad things when they happen, but he had come to accept it, but accept it in a way that he showed honor and glory to God. These disclosures of God stirred him deeply and caused him to pray, just like all of us should. The profound burden of the prophet's heart is expressed in verse 2. Look there now. Lord, I have heard the report about thee, and I fear. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk had heard God's purposes to discipline Judah and then destroy Babylon. You see, the report filled him with fear and apprehension. Fear or reverence is his personal reaction to the power and sovereignty of God. And God's answer was beyond simple human understanding. And God's sovereignty is in a, it's an awesome reality. The disturbed prophet finds his outlet for his burden in prayer, which begins with two petitions. He prayed for a fresh manifestation of God's power or revival of deeds and a full measure of pardon or mercy and both God's deeds and mercy were requested and these are the only petitions in this entire prayer his first request is for the renewal or revival of God's working in the world and in individual lives first of all Habakkuk was concerned about the people around him He was concerned about the church. He was concerned about the world. And so he asks God, where are you? Why aren't you answering? Where are you when we need you? And God says, be patient. God says, I have an answer, but I don't think you're going to like it. How many of us go to prayer expecting God to give us an answer we don't want? How many of us go into prayer expecting something good to happen? Or how many of us pray for the simple means of giving God glory? There are many different ways to pray. And there are many different ways that God can answer us. But are we willing to accept What he tells us. And that's what Habakkuk is telling us. Are we willing. To lay down everything. And understand that this is God's will for us. That no matter what we go through. No matter what trial. Or things that are worthy of praise. We have to understand that this is God's will. And this is God's will for us. Are we willing to accept that. So his first request is the renewal and revival of God's working in the world and individual lives. And revival always begins with God. Always begins with God. Not just some activity or notion that someone says, you know what? We're going to have a revival. That is not how it works. And that is not true revival. Revival always begins with God. The need to renew the impact of God's previous workings. The anchor point of Israel's faith and hope. The Exodus experiment or experience implies that redemption and sanctification were facing extinction. Is that true today? Is redemption, and sanctification becoming extinct. The twice-repeated phrase in the midst of the years states that God's life-changing intervention was needed right now. We need God's intervention right now. Amen? Israel needed God to make known to make alive by experiential proofs, by the reenactment of his deeds and power. And Habakkuk pleaded that God would do it immediately. The prophet wanted God to manifest his grace upon Israel. And when Habakkuk prayed for God's work to come, alive. He was also praying that his own faith might grow. So in other words, if we're going to experience true revival, we have to ask for it. We have to ask for it and wait for God's answer. But not only that. Revival doesn't come through an event. It comes through us. It starts with God, but it has to be done within us first. If there's going to be revival, there must be a stirring of our hearts over what is not happening in the church and what is not happening in the world. When British evangelist Gypsy Smith was asked how to start a revival, and it's in your bulletin notes in the quote there, he says this, Go home. Lock yourself in your room. Kneel down in the middle of that room and draw a chalk mark all around yourself and ask God to start the revival inside that chalk mark. When he has answered your prayer, the revival is on. Revival needs to start within us first. What's the saying? You can't help others unless you help yourself first. This is not a selfish statement. This is God getting us to realize that He can't do what He does best through us unless we allow Him to do so. We have to give Him permission. Now, that seems odd that we have to give God permission to do anything, He can do anything He wants. But that's God's love for us. That's how he shows it. He still lets us know that maybe he's kind of like our wives, gentlemen. They make us believe we're in control, right? But really, they're in control. That's how I know God has a sense of humor. But that's what he's saying. I, as God, have the control over you. But I need your permission to do the work through you. And that's what he was revealing here. He wanted to do the work. He wanted to help them. He wanted to make things right. And he still does. But we're not asking for it. We're not fixing ourselves first. You see, Smith's reply makes an important point here. Even though we should pray for revival in our churches... We need not wait for a spectacular working of God's Spirit in others to experience His power in our own lives. In fact, the Lord is ready right now. He's ready. Are you ready? The Lord is ready right now. God's Spirit wants to flow through us. So... The question's asked, how do you have a revival? How do you have a revival? Are you a believer whose heart has grown cold? You're going to answer this to yourself. Has your heart grown cold? Have you become indifferent to the Lord? Have you had the things of earth and the pleasures of this life taken priority over everything else? If so, we are encouraged to take these steps. First, we need to acknowledge our need. Acknowledge our need. And then we need to confess our sins to the Lord. Spend time daily in God's word, listening to God. We need to be talking to our Heavenly Father in prayer. We need to determine to say no to every temptation of this world, to the flesh and the devil. But then we need to say yes to God, to his will, and to his way. The Holy Spirit who dwells within you is more powerful than Satan. 1 John 4 4. We know this. We've been given the tools. We've been given the instructions. So I can only imagine God, even in our presence here this morning, is kind of twiddling his thumbs going, okay, I'm ready. Are we ready? Are we ready for true revival? The prophet's second request kind of evolved from the first. You see, God was going to judge Israel because of the presence of sin. And this disciplining was going to be a difficult experience, as we described last week. It was going to be difficult. And God's discipline would work out for their good. That was his promise. I'm doing this for your own good. And it's not like us as parents saying... Son, this is going to hurt you more than me. We believe that as parents. But then we do those things and all of a sudden we feel worse than the child. But that's not what God is saying. God is saying, I'm doing this for your good. You're going through this for your own good. And as we mentioned last week, God never breaks his promises. So if that's a promise, then certainly we can endure some of the things that we're supposed to endure. God's wrath is the inevitable outcome for those who break covenant with him. But his constant and consistent disposition is mercy towards those who walk in his will and way. Disobedience. Injustice, violence, and innocent bloodshed called for his wrath. But Habakkuk calls on God to remember and exhibit the merciful side of his character as well. A renewed desire to acknowledge and follow God allows the floodgates of his mercy To open. Our hope and the hope of the church is that God will be merciful. We move on to verses 3 through 7. And the short version or the cliff notes of this would tell you that this is a praise for God's splendor and majesty. You see, Habakkuk's telephone like conversation with God in chapter 1 became more like a closed circuit television hookup in chapter 2. And as the prophet began to pray for revival, he was ushered into the very presence of the Creator, with whom he had spoken so boldly from a distance. In other words, God called his bluff. And said here I am. Where am I? I'm right here where I should be. And where I've always been. Verse 3 declares. That the visible power of God. Is manifested on earth. God comes from Taman. And the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens. And the earth is full of his praise. Habakkuk sees God coming down again as he did for his people at Mount Sinai. He came down to liberate his covenant people. Taman was a desert oasis in southern Palestine, but it might also represent the entire region south of the Dead Sea. Sire, used by Moses, was a Poetic name for the mountainous region referred to as Taman. Mount Paran also lies in southern Palestine or Edom, between the Sinai Peninsula to the south and Kadesh Barnea to the north, another mountainous area. Sorry, I'm giving you a geography lesson, which most of you are probably going, okay. If you can't picture your mind, look at a map, it's interesting. God's use of the forces of nature are remembered as acts of a mighty warrior going before his people. God comes down and his splendor or the light of his glory covers the heavens. God's splendor permeates the heavens and expresses in them and by them his majesty. God's shimmering glory not only filled the heavens, but his praise filled the earth. The power of his work and character filled up the earth. And his praise will be manifested in his creation at this appearing. One day, he will display his splendor, and fill the earth with his praise. As promised in chapter 2, verse 14. He's coming. And oh, what a glorious day it will be. Verse 3 deals with the extent of God's coming. And verses 4 through 6 here in chapter 3 point out some of the effects Verse 4 illustrates the coming of God's brilliant splendor as seen in the light of the sun at sunrise. says, His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from His hand, and there is the hiding of His power. All creation reflects God's splendor, and His radiance, or brilliance, is manifested as light. The Lord is perceived as illuminating to this world with the rays of sunlight as described here. The rays and are flashes of light and power emanating from His presence. The hand is repeatedly used as a symbol of our Father's power. And just as the rays of light streak across the morning sky so rays flash from God's hand. And there in the brightness and the hiding of his power, the splendor actually conceals the glorious, invisible God. Our God is a God that hides his power. Does that make any sense to you and I? Our God is one that hides his power. Why? Why should he hide his power? Because it is easy to forget that the sun that showers light and warmth upon the earth, a ball of fire that could consume our globe in a moment, should we come in contact. He's protecting us. The revelation of God is always restrained, lest it consume its beholders. You see, the unseen God... Also has hidden powers at his disposal. Verse 5. Before him goes plague. And pestilence comes after him. So God is fully capable. Of exercising his cleansing power. Habakkuk saw that as God moved across the land. Plagues preceded him. And pestilence. Literally burning heat. Or bolts of fire lay in his wake. Plagues and pestilence are attributed to divine agency as part of judgment. At his will, God can strike down his enemies with plagues like he did with the ten mentioned in the Old Testament. Or afflict Egypt with pestilence. And it may refer to some disease accompanying with burning fever or it could mean firebolts coming down out of the sky. According to Revelation 6, plagues and visitations will precede the visible coming of the Lord to earth. His grace and glory are coupled with His might and judgment. You see, God to manifest his power by simply standing still. And as verse 6 indicates, he stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and trembled the nations. And yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills sank down. His ways are everlasting. So the prophet's vision of God coming down and moving across the land, reach a climax here. God stood still as sovereign and surveyed the earth as if to measure it up for his actions. His very presence caused the earth to shake as it convulsed by earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. Furthermore, by a mere glance at the nations, he causes them to tremble. And this shaking of all things is further described as the perpetual mountains and the internal hills, the most solid, permanent, and grandest fixtures of the globe, crumbling to dust. That's the might of his power. They crumble to dust. They are frail. They are temporary. Although they appear old and permanent, in truth, God alone is eternal and his ways are everlasting. The creation itself knows who's its master. Verse 7, the distress of the peoples of earth is brought into focus here. It says, I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. The nations are now illustrated by Midian. These nations would have been the first to experience God's coming to visit his people. The tents speak of their nomadic existence, and these people under distress because they were worshiping idols and gods of their own making instead of who they should have been serving and who they should have been praising. Even the most able to exist outside of the ways of the earth will be distressed and quake at the Lord's coming. There will be a time when he answers that prayer. Where are you? Why aren't you taking care of this? Church, he's doing it right now as we speak. The question is, is where our faith lies. The question is, is who do we serve? And when that time comes, which is... Now, where do we stand? Our God uses judgments to deliver his people. Do we understand that? God uses judgments to deliver his people. In order for us to be delivered, his judgment must come. God's use of nature in judgments is listed in verses 8 through 11. God's rule over and through the basic elements of nature is demonstrated in these verses. Verse 8 contains three rhetorical questions. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you ruled or rode on your horses? on your chariots of salvation. You see, in this section, Yahweh is directly addressed in the second person, or you. It begins with three questions with center on God's motive for his appearance, which causes such forceful reactions upon the earth and in the heavens. So was God's wrath against the rivers and at its streams and at the sea? In other words, was God angry with nature? While direct answers are not given, a no answer is implied. God is not displeased with nature. He was displeased with man he was using nature as a tool to demonstrate his power he had exhibited his power by smiting the nile river and there's many examples of this throughout scripture the jordan river and similarly god would use the power of nature to smite the nations and his motive was to destroy his enemies and deliver his people. This is a reoccurring theme throughout Scripture. And it applies to us this morning. God's chariots and horses are evidence of his power as the Lord of hosts. He ruled his angels and rode steeds to bring salvation to his people. Elsewhere, wing cherubim on the clouds, serve as his chariots or thrones riding the winds and striking forth with the power and brightness of lightning. His chariots bringing the power of the winds and the storm drives back the waters and turns them up. His cherubim and angelic force are executors of his sovereignty over nature. Therefore, God was seen as a victor riding forth with his horses. God has used creation from the parting of the time of Noah and the great flood to fight against his and his people's enemies. And Habakkuk directly addresses these questions to Yahweh, longing for God to act, to intervene with his great power again. More of God's arsenal joins the battle in verse 9. Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. You cleave the earth with rivers. The bow was made bare shows God pulling it from its sheath to get it ready ready for action. God is ready for action. God is ready for action. The third line indicates that God's actions and power can be seen in the carving out of nature. He creased the earth for the rivers and God forms the channels from where he would have things flow. And his power was displayed then and so it will again. The mountains quaked at his presence and their promise or their <laughs> prominence withered away and verse 11 states that even the celestial bodies acknowledge their creator sun and moon stood in their places they went away at the light of thine arrows at thy radiance of thy gleaming spear the sun and moon are highly visible symbols of God's created order as they are always there and always on time they represent consistency and permanence. We have based our calendar upon these fixtures. Their inactivity indicates the interruption of that time-space order. In Joshua ten, eleven through 14, 2 Kings chapter 20, Isaiah 38. At Gideon the son and moon stood still in their respective places in heaven because he is their creator and the creator of nature law. He holds sovereignty over them and what they represent as well. You see, God can work his wonders not only on earth, sea, and among the nations, but in the highest heavens as well. Yet all the light and brilliance of sun, moon, and lightning pale in comparison to the splendor of our Lord. The interruption in the created order, characterized by darkness, is also indicative of the coming day of the Lord. God's judgment is going to come to the nations. Verse 12 states that in history, God marched through his world dealing justice to the nations. In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. So here, Habakkuk envisioned God moving like a thundering giant who marches through the earth. But God was hardly tiptoeing through the tulips. In anger, he tramples or threshes the nations as an ox treads through the grain to beat out and crush the chaff. So God marched across the earth to crush sinful people and bring salvation to Israel. I think the prophet wanted to incite God just to see if he'd get an answer. How many of us have done that before? testing the waters, so to speak. I've learned my lesson many times. But he did that in order to bring out of control. He wanted to bring chaos, I'm sorry, he wanted to bring back control and get rid of chaos. He wanted to bring the people and the nations back to order. I believe that we are in that time again, that we need to bring the people back and the nations back to order. We need to bring true revival so that no one doubts as to the reason God is manifesting such power. Habakkuk expressly states that God was going forth for the salvation of his people. God is going forth for us to bring us Salvation. The last part of the verse describes Yahweh's victory over a violent leader with a serious body and head wound. And God will eventually crush the head of the leader of the force of evil in our world. Those forces are attacking God's people. God's mighty past acts in history amply demonstrate that He is able to save those who look to him in faith. And that is true for us. The attackers of God's people will be thrown into panic and confusion and God will cause them to destroy each other with their own weapons. But those under affliction will have victory brought about for them by God. God already has the victory. God has won the war. But we still have battles to fight. We still have battles to fight. The stanza of the hymn ends with a reminder in verse 15 that the creator warrior churns the sea with his horses. Though you tread... On the sea with your horses, on the surge of many waters. The recital of God's marvelous acts in history brings this section to a close. This reference is probably to one of his most spectacular miracles that he performed. The prophet brings to remembrance God taking his people through the Red Sea. The pursuing Egyptians were trod, or trod under the seas and mighty waters as God wrought deliverance for his people. So what he did in history for his people, is he willing to do it again? Is there any God like our God? Habakkuk's request for revival is a great petition To put before God. And it is certainly. One we need. To place before God. We need God to reveal his mighty acts. In the earth again. Maybe we will not. Cry out for revival. Because of the barrenness of our soul. And our religion. Because it does not reveal. Its need. Until our situation like Israel's. Is revealed. God's judgment is closing in on our nation. And we learn a lesson from history that we must seek God's reviving now in the midst of our current situation. But it starts within us. It starts within us. Remembrance is a blessed practice for the people of God, especially those who are in or facing times of distress and ready to fall into despair. They need to help themselves by remembering God's faithful acts towards them and His reviving of them in their mind. An excellent way to do this is to recount these occurrences to God in prayer. So we pray. And then we pray some more. And when we've done that, we pray again. This should bring renewed confidence and courage amongst God's people to accomplish what he has set us out to do. There are a people in the world who are God's people, and their salvation is what he has in mind as he sovereignly acts in this world. Though oppressors may rule the moment, church, they may rule the moment. God rules those oppressors, and he holds them accountable for afflicting his people. They will be made accountable. And like Habakkuk, may we trust in God's deliverance. Amen? Dave, come. As we close, I would like the ladies to sing the first part of this song, and the men finish it, if you would, please. Let's stand together. Ladies. He is We thank you for the many things that you bless us with and the things, that we, the things that go unnoticed, Lord. You care for us. You wish to see us thrive. And Lord, we know that you seek to have revival in this land to heal the nations and to heal your people. Lord, I pray you do that. You do that through us and let that sink in for us as Christians as we examine our own lives. I know many times we're out to save the world and we want to do what we can to save others. Humbleness. Indeed, things look not so great. But Lord, we put our faith and trust in you to understand that The deliverance of your people comes through your judgment. So, Lord, we place our trust in you this morning. Let us renew our faith to understand that your will should be our our will. Thank you for our time together. And, Lord, again, we thank you so much for what you blessed us with. And it's in your name we pray this morning. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord.